Good morning, Arcadia. How you doing? Okay, good to see you. <laughs> I almost heard you that time. So if you're new here, my name is Frank. I'm the uh, lead pastor here at Redemption Arcadia. Uh, and if you're wondering why we have to identify where we are, it's because there are nine uh, redemption congregations. We are one church with nine congregations. And um, so we're the Arcadia flavor, and we're glad that uh, you are here a uh, couple things, amen. I got an amen on Arcadia. That's awesome. All right. Yeah, now clap. Okay, we're starting to roll. This is good. So a couple things real quick. Uh, we talked for the last three weeks about this fantastic picnic that we were going to have after church today over at Pierce Park. We're still having a fantastic picnic, but we, uh, we called an audible because, and, and I know, I, I already tweeted about it this morning. You know, we should know by now that when people in Phoenix predict massive amounts of rain, it's never going to happen. But we decided that they were so sure of it that it was going to happen that we decided to move the picnic here. So it's going to be right after second service. In fact, I think we'll have um, hamburgers and hot dogs ready as people are coming out of second service. And so uh, if you're planning on hanging around, getting coffee for 75 minutes or coming back or whatever, come right back here. We're going we're gonna to be cooking outside. And we're going to move chairs out of the way and we're going to kind of eat and have the picnic in here. So it'll be more like a, more like a church lunch than necessarily a picnic. There will still be face paint. Painting. Um, we just probably won't play fr- frisbee football in here. That's the one thing we won't do. So please come back or hang around uh, and be a part of that. Uh, second thing I want to mention is um, uh, Sean Mortensen and uh, Benjamin Jensen put together these really nifty uh, little books for the Gospel of Mark. Uh, they're in the back. We've got about 50 left if you would like one. Um, it, what it does is it has the English Standard Version uh, of the Mar- Gospel of Mark on one side. And then on the other side is notebook paper. And so uh, if you want to use that during the next year that we are in the Gospel of Mark, handy little tool for you there as well. So let's get into it now today. We're in the Gospel of Mark. This is our, I don't know, fourth or fifth week, something like that. Um, it, most of you know that uh, one of the other things that I do is uh, for the last 14 years, I've been an adjunct instructor of communication at Paradise Valley Community Church, uh, sorry, Paradise Valley Community College. I get all those PVCCs uh, confused from time to time. Anyway, I teach at Paradise Valley Community College, communication. Um, a little over three years ago, when Tyler Johnson, the lead pastor for Redemption Church, was, was interviewing me and vetting me over that eight-week period of time trying to decide whether or not I might be the guy that would come and lead the Arcadia um, uh, congregation, uh, he at one point told me that uh, he went online and went to a website that I frankly had never heard of and, and have not visited since. I really don't want to know what's going on in this website, to be perfectly frank with you. Um, but I think it's called rateyourprofessor.com. And so he went on that uh, website to see what the students were saying about me to see if there might be some problem there that he could detect. Tyler's very thorough. Anyway, he told me that there was one person on there who had mentioned that um, the person gave me one star out of five. It was my worst rating. And the person then in the comment section said, this guy is way too energetic and enthusiastic about the communication material. He's too excited. The guy freaked me out. If you don't like professors or instructors 
who are excited and enthusiastic about their material stay away from Switzer. Okay, that's essentially what he said. So I tell you that story to help you understand that as excited I am as I am about the communication discipline and the academics of communication, I'm way more excited about Mark. So if I have too much energy or enthusiasm during this thing with Mark, because it's going to last a year, tough darts. I'm going to be excited about this stuff. There's really good stuff in here. And today we're going to look at 14 verses. It's one of the bigger chunks that we'll look at uh, during this series until we get to uh, um, chapter 5 where we just split chapter 5 into two, two sections and then that's it. But the big idea today that we're looking at, and you heard Lori read it, and I'm going to read it again because we need to hear it again. The big idea today is that there is only one true and ultimate authority and power. There is only one true and ultimate authority and power, and that would be Jesus. And we're going to see that uh, come out in this text today. Not only today, but also for the rest of the Gospel of Mark as well. So let me reread this section. I'm going to talk just a little bit about um, the the text itself in in a very direct way, but then we're going to pull three important uh, life touch points out of the text today for us. And and I'll just tell you that of those three, the first one we're we're probably going to spend 70% of our time on. It's the fact that spiritual war is real and and that uh, Mark talks about this throughout this gospel and we need to hit that very hard uh, this morning to kind of lay a foundation for that. So let me just read it again starting in verse 21. And they went into Capernaum. Let me just mention about Capernaum. This is a town that's in Galilee. Uh, The vast majority of Jesus' three years of ministry was spent in this region of Galilee, which is about anywhere from 60 to 90 miles north of Jerusalem, which is really the hub of of Judaism. But most of his ministry was done up in this area of Galilee and even uh, east of the the Sea of Galilee, which would be uh, considered the Decapolis, where there's those 10 cities east of the Sea of Galilee. But Capernaum is a part of that in the northernmost part of Galilee. It's right on uh, the Sea of Galilee, and it's about 20 miles north of Nazareth, which is where Jesus is actually from. So he goes into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And the other thing we know about Capernaum, just from uh, reading the text, is that it had a sizable enough population of Jewish people that they had a synagogue. So there was a pretty strong Jewish presence there since they had a synagogue, and Jesus went in as a rabbi to teach there. And they, the people who were there in the synagogue, were astonished at his teaching. We'll talk about that word. For he taught them as one who had authority. And we'll talk about that word. And and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. There's that word again. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew, Peter and, and James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever And immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her and she began to serve them. And then that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. And the whole city gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So they were astonished at his teaching 
This word astonished is important to understand. There's actually two Greek words, biblical Greek words that in the English we translate as astonished. Uh, one of them you, you will find in the, in the first chapter of the, the letter that Paul writes to the church at Galatia where he says, I'm astonished that you have so quickly abandoned the gospel that I've taught you and are now pursuing another or a different gospel which is really no gospel at all. That word there translated astonished actually in the Greek means more like confused or mystified. This word that we see here is much stronger. It's way different than just confused or mystified. The word literally means they were thunderstruck. It's kind of like the first time I saw my wife Jackie. It was like I was thunder. I wasn't confused or mystified. I was thunderstruck. A bolt of lightning had, had, had hit me. And, and the, the people in the synagogue had never experienced this before. Mark is trying to get across to us that this is, this is not subtly different than what had been taught or how it, things have been taught before, but it is vastly different. It's like, um, uh, here's a, one illustration I can think of. When I was in seminary, I had a lot of great professors in seminary. Yes, even at Fuller Seminary. And we had um, one professor who taught uh, three different quarters, three straight quarters uh, in Phoenix. He was from Pasadena, though. He lived on the main, or he, he worked at the main campus, but he would come over on the weekends during the quarter and teach here. And I took uh, classes from him all three quarters. And the guy was amazing. His name was Nate Feldmuth, Dr. Nate Feldmuth. Um, he would come over. He would come over four Saturdays during the ten-week quarter. He would come over Friday night, stay in a hotel, get up Saturday morning. He would start teaching at eight o'clock in the morning. We'd have an hour for lunch, and then he would stop at five thirty that night. And I kid you not, there were forty people in the class. He was so good at what he did that at five thirty, even after all day, we would beg him not to stop. We would beg him to keep going because he was that good. But if Jesus were to walk into that classroom, we'd ask Dr. Feldman to have a seat. You have the floor, Jesus. Because Jesus isn't going to be like Dr. Feldmuth teaching about the material or his interpretation of the material or what he knows about the material. Jesus is the one who wrote the material. It, it, is, it is out of him that the material came, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. And so he's going to teach with a much higher degree of authority, which would astonish people to hear that. Jesus walks in right now, he's going to teach Mark. I'll have a, I'll have a seat, okay? And, and as he's doing this, Jesus is confronted by a man with an unclean spirit. So what's an unclean spirit? It's another way of saying a demon. We're going to get into that today because twice in this passage today we talk about it. And it is correct to assume that the demon had it in for Jesus. That this was an important confrontation. And I want you to see that what's happening here is Jesus is establishing His power and authority by demonstration in two realms, not just one. We, we, we focus in on this, this unclean spirit and the demonic and we understand that and that's important to do. But that's just one realm that we need to focus in on where Jesus is establishing His power and authority. There's two realms. Number one, we just saw that he has established his power and authority in the religious realm. The, the religious professionals were sort of put in their place by Jesus with the way he taught out of his own original material. So the lawyers, the scribes, the Pharisees, the other rabbis, they've been, they've been essentially uh, put in their place is, is maybe too pejorative to, to say it that way, but essentially that's what's happened. Jesus has established that he is the one true ultimate 
ultimate power and authority over the religious realm, but also now he's confronted with this unclean spirit. The unclean spirit, you can tell by the way people react not only here, but also um, in the rest of Mark to these demons and unclean spirit. You also know that the unclean spirit of the demons had power out in the public sphere, in the culture. They were the ones with the power. And Jesus establishes over the unclean spirits, over the demons, that he also has ultimate power and authority over them as well. Uh, the, 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 the interaction that he has with this unclean spirit is specifically the unclean spirit coming to Jesus and taking on Jesus, trying to confront him. He knows who he is, the Holy One of God, but that's not going to stop him from trying to take him on. Just like just be, if you and I are Christians, it's not going to stop us from being attacked as well, that we're going to have spiritual warfare as well. But Jesus is establishing in every possible realm right now that there is a new authority and power, and it is the ultimate eternal authority and power. And that which had authority and power no longer does when compared to Jesus. And I want you to remember in the beginning of this gospel when Jesus comes and pronounces the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, when he casts out demons, he's showing that the kingdom of God is real and the kingdom of God is advancing and that the kingdom of God, because Jesus is the king, is where the real true power is. And they said he's got, this is a new teaching and with authority. Well, what gave it authority and how did they know? I've already mentioned this, but I want to go a little bit deeper. Uh, Jesus did not simply teach what the other rabbis were teaching. He was not simply repeating the traditions and the interpretations and the yokes of other teachers and scribes. Instead, Jesus taught as one who wrote the original material because he did write the original material. The Greek word here is exousion, which literally means from or out of the origin from or out of the original material. So in English, we might say, or we should say, that an author has authority over his or her text that he or she writes. Unless, of course, you're a Stanley Fish fan and you believe in reader response theory, and if you understand that and get that and would like to have coffee with me and talk about it, that would be awesome. I'd love to do that with you. But this is not going to be reader response theory here. Jesus is the author and the creator of everything. He's the author of creation, he's the author of life, and he's the author of God's word. He's the author of scripture. And so he has original authority. He does not have derived or delegated authority. He is the authority. His essence is authority. His essence is power. And also, he accompanies this teaching with miracles and healings. And we need to remember that Jesus is, is doing two things, at least two things there when he accompanies his teaching with these uh, healings and with these miracles. It's demonstrating not only that his teaching does have authority, we're going to see that next week when he heals um, the, the, the paralyzed guy. This is going to be really interesting next week. But, but not only does it show that his teaching has, has authority, but it's also, a, it's also demonstrating that what you and I have been waiting for and what those very people 2,000 years, 2,100 years ago were also waiting for, he's saying the kingdom is here. This is a foretaste of the way things are really supposed to be. The kingdom of God is at hand and we're, we're letting you see glimpses now of what that's going to be ultimately like when I come again. And it says that he wouldn't allow the demons to speak to speak again you read the Gospel of Mark straight through, which I advocated a couple weeks ago and will advocate again 
uh, this week, you begin to see certain patterns emerge. And one of the patterns is that in these early chapters, Jesus doesn't want anybody that he heals or that he healed people from or that he performs a miracle on. He doesn't really want anybody talking about it. Or if they do talk about it, he wants them to do it in a very specific way. And so people ask all the time, why is it that, that Jesus doesn't want any of this to get out? Why wouldn't he want it to get out and have bigger crowds and all this stuff? There, there's actually three reasons. Number one, it's a timing issue. Jesus had a plan and he had a mission. He had a purpose. And so he wanted to somehow be able to help control how and when this was all going to take shape. Eventually, he knows he's going to Jerusalem so, and, and, and he's going to eventually um, be crucified and ra- be raised. He knows that. He understands that. But he wants it to unfold in the way that he wants it to unfold. Second of all, just, this is just something that our sort of our Western culture and our Western understanding of success and achievement, even in church world, starts to drive how we see texts and how we understand things. We need to remember that Jesus wasn't trying to build a megachurch. Some of us look at that and go, man, he could have a really big, cool church. You know, he could buy 100 acres and, and be the big church in town and all that. He's not trying to do that. He didn't, in John, he didn't come and say, I came so that you would have church and have it hugely. That's not what he said. Now, there's nothing wrong with church. We're doing church right now, right? It's just, church is good. Church is the, is the body of Christ. It's the bride of Christ. I'm not throwing church under the bus, but that's not ultimately why he came. Instead, in John, he says, I came that you would have what? Life and have life abundantly. And church is a part of that, but he came so that we would have life. And then third, Jesus really, in this particular case, really, I don't think Jesus wants demons as his herald, as the one announcing that he's coming. I think if he were to pick a herald, he would pick somebody other than the demons. And so now we get into these three points of application. And like I said, this first one is going to be our longest one. And here it is. Spiritual war is real. We see in these 14 verses unclean spirits, oppressed by demons, cast out demons. What do we make of this? There is... um, a pastor who writes, um, uh, wrote about a struggle that he and his family were having with, with what he felt was demon oppression and, and spiritual warfare, and he writes this. Satan was not playing fair, and now my shock turned to anger. I scanned the recesses of my brain. What had seminary taught me about demonic activity? I couldn't recall any class where we had discussed anything remotely similar to what we were experiencing. Demonology 101 wasn't even offered at my seminary. Mine either, by the way. But seminary did teach me not to panic in the face of theological conundrums. It gave me a lens through which I could see everything from the perspective of God and His sovereignty. It gave me a lens through which I could see everything through the perspective of God through the lens of, his, of, of God and His sovereignty. So we're just going to pound this message today that Jesus is the one true ultimate power and authority. That we must continually look at Him. We need to know about things, but we need to make sure that we're focused on Him, that, that we are gospel-centered, that that is our, our primary thing in life. And, and, and some of you, I know you're a little, okay, we're going to talk about spiritual warfare. We have to take this on. We have to take this on. I'm serious about this. As your pastor, I think, I think that I, I need to shepherd in this area. I need to try to lead in this area. It's, it's uh, second. It's, it, there's, there's two places in the text today where we see it. 
So it's not just once, it's twice. And again if, you, again, if you read the entire Gospel of Mark in one sitting, what you begin to see is that there's a lot of this that goes on in Mark. There's a lot of this. And so we, we, need, to, we need to talk about it. It's also in the other Gospels. It's in the book of Acts. The other uh, uh, New Testament writers write about it. And so we need to be aware of this and we need to understand it and we need to know that it's real. So let's get started. The first thing I would say is, and I know some of this might be just review for some of you, and that's great, but for others of you, maybe you've been waiting for somebody in church to actually talk about this. Well, here's, here's our chance, okay? So the two most common responses that we have to the idea of spiritual war and Satan and demons, and, and C.S. Lewis wrote extensively about this. Other authors have also written about this as well. I've, my experience has confirmed this, that these are the two most common responses to this issue that we're bringing up right now. Number one uh, is to just ignore it. We, we ignore it because it's a little uncomfortable. It's a little bit awkward. Uh, we ignore it because we think that we can now explain away everything through science. But I would argue, again, that this is very dangerous because Satan is real. Demons are real. This war that we're involved in is real. I mentioned this two weeks ago. The greatest trick Satan ever played was making people believe he did not exist. If you do not know that you have an enemy and that your enemy is attacking you, you have no chance of winning. It's just that simple. But the other response is, all the way over at the other end of the spectrum, it is to obsess about this. It is to focus about this. It is to make your entire life all about this. And this is also a very dangerous response because by obsessing and focusing on it too much, you actually end up giving it power. Let me say that again. By obsessing on it and focusing on it, you actually end up giving it the power that it, that it desires. Further, it leads to what some people call dangerous speculation, which is something that the church has dealt with in a variety of areas for more than 2,000 years, but it's especially true in this area. And, and what dangerous speculation is, is, is it means this. The more that we are obsessed about this issue of demons and, and spiritual war, the more likely we are to, ex- to speculate on what might be true rather than looking at what God's word is for what is true. We end up speculating about what might be true instead of really looking hard at God's word to tell us what is true. Here's a great example. Uh, According to the most recent Christian surveys, more than uh, 50% of people who identify themselves as Bible-believing, Bible-teaching Christians, more than 50% of them claim that the Bible says that each one of us has assigned to us a personal guardian angel. And that is not true. Yes, there are angels, and there are angels ministering to us. But what I want you to hear that the Bible teaches is that we have a Savior who has defeated Satan. That's what we need to hear. And, and, and I, frankly, I'm glad we have the angels, but frankly, I'd rather have the Savior who has defeated Satan. And so our focus needs to be on the gospel, on Jesus, on God's word, and on prayer, not on speculation and obsession. We do not ignore this issue, but neither do we crown it and give it the spotlight. We need to treat it reasonably. Now, I want you to go back two weeks to when I was teaching about Jesus in the wilderness and his encounter with Satan. What were the two things that Jesus did in his encounter with Satan? Did did he wave his magic demon wand and call for the priest from the movie The Exorcist? Is that what he did? No, he did not. He stood on God's word and prayer. He stood on God's word and prayer. And the only way you can do that, by the way, I'm going to make this point a number of times, the only way you can do that is if you're a gospel-centered person, if you know Jesus and are pursuing him in a relationship with him. 
Jesus is the one true ultimate power and authority. And so now let's back up a little bit, uh, define some things, and then I'll, I'll bring it home for us. First of all, what is a demon? Well, here's what Scripture tells us. Demons were created. God created them. He created them good as angels. But as Second Peter and Jude tell us, some of them fell, and so they are now evil. They're demons. They're with Satan. There are still some good ones, but some of them fell. But as created beings, we need to remember this, as created beings, they are limited in their power and knowledge, something that God has ultimately. God is the one we look at for ultimate, true, eternal, all-encompassing power and knowledge. While they are powerful and they do have knowledge, they, are, they don't have anything compared to God and His Son, Jesus Christ. So it's essential to remember that God's sovereignty has always, always will trump the power of Satan and his demons. Jesus is the one true, ultimate power and authority. But we also know that this is really hard. I'm not, di- I'm not trying to dismiss this at all. This is really hard because demons are tough and persistent and they have a one-track mind and that is the destruction of people. That's their track. First Peter uh, chapter 5, verse 8 tells us that Satan and by implication his demons, those who are working for him, prowl around like a lion just looking for someone to devour. And if, you, if, you're, just, if you're in Lala and you don't have any idea that this is happening, he will devour you. So again, Satan is real. Demons are real. Peter and the other biblical writers are not using stories and fantasies to teach some impersonal, abstract, fate-based, random reason why things in this world stink. It's not what he's doing. This is not a myth or a legend or anything. This is real stuff. But also, we need to remember that Satan, sin, death, demons have all been effectively defeated by the cross and the resurrection. And the ultimate demise of them is described in Revelation chapter 20. But we still have to battle until then. If you've heard anybody say the already and not yet, that's what we're talking about here. He's already defeated, but we are not yet there ourselves. And so we still battle. This is what the last half of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus uh, the last half of chapter 6 is all about. It's him telling us uh, the, the schemes of Satan are real. Spiritual war is real. And so you need to put on the armor of God and keep putting it on. Put it on continuously. Jesus is the one true ultimate power and authority. Th- this, this spiritual war has power and it can have power over us, but it's not the most powerful. We need to remember that he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. And so our job, again, is to proclaim the gospel, trust God, seek His word, His will, His wisdom, pray, and be in community. And what, is, what do demons do? Well, according to Scripture, they oppose the kingdom of God, they prowl around, they appear as angels of light, they enjoy watching people turn away from God, they, they are liars and deceivers and false teachers they love darkness and death. And here's the key. They're kind of like your computer with that annoying message that's always telling you about the update that's ready to go. They are constantly updating their methods. They are constantly staying as far ahead of you as they possibly can. They're never going to get ahead of God, but they're trying to stay as far ahead of you as they possibly can. They're not stupid. And here's the thing. The vast majority of the time, they don't come with that full frontal attack. I've said this before. They're subtle. They're manipulative. They're creative. They're endearing. It's tricky, and you need to be really careful about that. And so we need Jesus and His Word and prayer 
in his community. John Piper says this, The chief strategy for protecting against and engaging this enemy is the consistent proclamation of the gospel and prayer, all of which is strictly enlightened by the truth of God's word. And that leads us to this point. And this is really important. I'm going to spend just a couple of minutes on it, but it's really important for all of us to hear. Even if we get this, we need to know that this is, this is happening. Uh, this issue of demons and, and Satan and spiritual warfare, there is a lot of consumerism surrounding this issue. A lot of consumerism and not enough relationship, community, and commitment. Lots of consumerism, but not enough relationship, community, and commitment. A very common request, let you a little inside church world here, a very common request from people who believe that there is some sort of demonic action surrounding them or in them or oppressing them or whatever is that they want to be able to come to a church and, and talk to the people at the church and they want them to do something about it, but they really don't want a relationship with the church or a commitment to Christ. They don't want to know who Jesus is. They just want this problem or whatever it is, this wicked, evil stuff to stop. Now, I say this all the time. And I say it because my experience bears it out as true, constantly running into this. Lots of people see the local church as just another store at the mall where they go to shop for their spiritual goods and services, but they don't really have a relationship with the church. That's, that is one of the uh, largest views uh, of the church that people have. And there are a few places that this is more true than in this area of spiritual warfare and demonology and those things. And I would even argue, I mentioned this earlier, I would even argue that the 1975 blockbuster movie The Exorcist had a lot to do with this notion. The family in that, in that movie, they weren't real strong churchgoers. They even made fun of the church at times. They, weren't, they, they didn't want to have really anything to do with Jesus. And yet, yet... When their daughter began to experience this problem, Reagan or whatever her name was, and she started, what did they do? They immediately turned to the church, called the priest. The priest came. The priest ended up giving his life in order to perform this exorcism. And so many people look at that and go, oh, I see, that's how it's done. That's kind of the job of the church. Now, that's not the primary way, but it's, it's a contributing factor. Hollywood got it wrong. Now, of course, we want, some of you, I know some of you right now are like, well, what about the opportunity of proclaiming the gospel to these people? Of course. Of course we are going to proclaim the gospel to these people as they come. But you need to understand that the primary response to that is, oh no, I don't, I don't, that's not what I'm looking for. Just fix the problem. That's what I'm, I don't want to start coming to church. You guys are a little freaky. That Sunday, I don't want to do that. Just, you know. We're the freaks, but you're coming and saying, here, you know, fix this. Okay, so anyway, but you, you see how this can go. Yes, we proclaim the gospel to these people, but they view us as, the, they don't say this, but they view us more as shamans or magicians. They, they don't view us as shepherds, as pastors. And, and the problem is, is that we deal in what Scripture says we don't submit ourselves to the popular cultural perception, although that's what a lot of people would like us to do in many areas. And so correcting the demon issue is not dependent upon a priest or a pastor and the willingness to pay for this service. We have people saying they'll pay for the service as well, by the way. Okay? It's not dependent on those things. It's dependent upon Jesus and faith in Him and His Word and prayer. And I want you to hear this. This is really important. 
This is part of what we deal with in a culture that values position because they, uh, people believe that position is where power resides. And everything in the gospel would argue against that. There is no, and so people want to get close to priests and pastors because of the position that priests and pastors might have because they perceive that there's power there. There's no power in the position. The power is in Jesus. We have to get that right. The power is in Jesus. But humanity, we just, we, we, even the apostles, we're stuck on this. And the apostles even did this. Remember? So in Mark 10, we'll get there. Matthew 20 also tells this story. They're walking along and James and John walk up to Jesus and they say, I thought this was an interesting command of their rabbi. They said, uh, Jesus, we're going to tell you to do something and you need to do it. And Jesus says, okay, what is it? And what did they request? When you come into your kingdom, one of us is going to be on your right, one of us is going to be on your left. And what did Jesus say? Now, this is a paraphrase, I admit, but essentially he says, man, you guys just don't get it. You just don't get it. And it's funny because all the other disciples heard this happen and they were angry at James and John. Why? Because they got their theology wrong? No, they were angry because they hadn't thought of it first. They wanted the position too because they think that's where the power is. We see power in position and so we want to be close to position. But real power is in essence. We need to know this. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I and the Father, we are one. And if you understand how that, I know this is a little bit inside baseball, but if you understand how that Greek works, it's, it's much more complex and deep Uh, deeper than than just that. What he's saying is that I and the Father, we're the same thing. We are the same essence. And it's his essence, Jesus' essence, where the power comes from. The power is in who Jesus is, not where he sits. Jesus doesn't have power because of where he sits. He sits where he sits because of his essence. And we need to get that straight. And then, Kind of the last thing we'll deal with here on this particular point is this question, because I know a lot of people are asking it. Can a a Christian be possessed by a demon? Can a Christian be possessed? It's really important. The answer to that would be no. A Christian cannot be possessed. That word possessed is a little bit of a problem word. We get kind of mixed up uh, with it. It's a word with a lot of baggage. That word possession to us communicates two things that are wrong. It communicates uh, complete control, In other words, it tells us that Jesus does not have ultimate power and authority, which this whole passage is about, the ultimate power and authority of Jesus. So that's wrong. But then the other thing it tells us is that somebody under the influence of a demon has no responsibility, no accountability, and they have a ready-made excuse for how they're behaving. And that's a problem as well. Both of these things would be unbiblical. The language used in these areas that that expresses possession does not necessarily convey the idea of possession in an ultimate sense, but rather oppressed or under the influence or that a demon is attacking. A Christian who is sealed by the Holy Spirit, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, can never be possessed. But can a Christian come under the influence of a demon or be oppressed by a demon or be attacked by a demon? Yes, of course. That's the whole point. Spiritual war is real. David and Job and and Paul himself all had these kinds of attacks. But again, what is it that we're to do? We stand on the Word of God. We stand on prayer. Ephesians 6, Paul writes that the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, we need that wielded in in a spirit of prayer and readiness. 
Now, if we're to do this, there's something that's required. There is something that's required if we're going to be able to do this. And we talked about it again two weeks ago. That would be repent and believe. Repentance and faith. We have to lean into our new identity and we have to believe in Jesus. A person should never expect God to grant rescue from the demonic or from our fleshly desires. Sometimes one and the same, sometimes not necessarily. But from either, we should not be granted, we will not be granted rescue when we neglect the foremost means that the Lord has ordained for our defense, which is the Word of God and prayer. And for sure, I would say this, that Scripture seems to be most clear in many of the areas where we are most rebellious. Isn't that an interesting irony? The Gospel Coalition, one of their essays, writes this, the hope of deliverance from demons or temptation or oppression of any sort that is divorced from a gospel-integrated life and a holistic process of discipleship that includes repentance, confession, community, and perseverance is actually dangerous and will do more damage than good. If you're trying to fix this without the the true relationship with Jesus, that's going to become a problem. And so spiritual war is real. And what we need to know is that Jesus is the one true ultimate power and authority. That leads to our second point. Just because somebody has authority, speaks with authority, and uses authority wisely and for good, it doesn't mean that people are going to submit to that authority. Not everyone was happy that Jesus was on the scene, even though it was clear that he had this authority. They may have marveled at his authority, but that did not necessarily lead to submission. Uh, One of my favorite stories in the Bible about this is John chapter 11, where Lazarus dies and Jesus takes his sweet time getting there and the the sisters are very angry at him. And it's four days now since Lazarus has died and he's, he's in the tomb. And, and uh, Jesus comes up and, and, and they ask Jesus to move the stone away. He's getting ready to perform one of the most popular, uh, most notorious miracles that Jesus ever performed. And they said, move the stone away. Lord, surely he stinks by now. You see, they were telling him, he's been, uh, Lazarus has been analyzed. We know for a fact he, he's not sleeping. He is de- he, he's dead. He's Texas dead. He's dead, okay? I mean, he's, he's out, okay? And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And, 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 Jesus, and Lazarus comes out. And, and it's that next verse, I don't know, 45, 46, that I think is the most interesting. It says that, and many believed. And I'm like, why didn't they all believe? I don't get that. That's pretty impressive. Why didn't they all believe? Do you see that though? Many believed. And there were at least some, and scholars would argue, many who did not believe. They saw it happen and they went, well, that's kind of a neat trick. Come back tomorrow, see what he does. Okay? Why didn't they believe? The demonstration of power and authority, even by God, is not necessarily something that people will end up submitting to. And we need to understand that. In spite of the authority, veracity, and mercy of Jesus, people don't necessarily submit to him then or now. And here's why. Here's why. We don't really think we need him. Think about this. Now, obviously, I'm talking to non-Christians. Their entire life, they really don't think they need Him unless they run into trouble that 5% of time and then they might reach out. I heard a story and read another essay uh, yesterday about an, uh, an atheist 
who became, a, both of them, atheists who became Christians, and both of them at one time or another admitted that when they got in trouble, they, they were crying out. They just weren't sure who to. But they knew that their trouble was outside of the realm of their power, and so they cried out. They admitted to that. But ultimately, we don't think we need, even, even those of us who are in Christ, we struggle with this sometimes. We don't understand. All of life is all for Jesus. Emphasis on the word all. And so we kind of give him the stuff that we don't want or that we didn't th- think we, but we'll, we'll, we'll go ahead and take care of the stuff that w- we won't submit if we really don't think we need him. A big part of that is just our own self-righteousness that we all deal with. Christians, non-Christians, we all deal with this self-righteousness. The love and grace and mercy of God is never scandalous or shocking to those who fail to understand how much they desperately need it. They, they say things like, that's nice, Jesus loves me, that's nice, he's merciful. But it's never scandalous or shocking the way it should be to those of us who fail to realize just how much we need it. And that leads us perfectly to number three. Like those people in the synagogue and throughout the rest of this gospel, if you today, if you haven't come to grip, grips with the gospel and with Jesus, you need to. And not next week, Not next month, not next year. This is something you need to come to grips with right now. You need to understand, every one of us, no matter what you claim, no matter what you say, every one of us lives by some code, some worldview, some cause, some ideology, something that we think is good and fulfilling that we think will somehow get us to where it is that we're supposed to go. We all believe this. Last week, Massey was up here and he said, you know, we all follow something. That's true. Everyone, I'm not a follower. I'm a leader. Well, you might be a leader in some realms, but at some point you're going to follow and there is something in your life that you're following. And if it's not Jesus, it's the wrong thing. And some of you will say, yeah, I'm following myself. What better person to follow than me? Wrong answer again. You need to follow Jesus. Haven't you screwed things up in the past? You need to be following Jesus. All of us are slaves to something. All of us are guided by something. A code, a teaching, a cause, a belief. Now, your code, your teaching, your cause, your belief, it may be very moralistic with stringent guidelines, something that even feels harsh to yourself even though you're the one that's made it up. Or it may be highly relativistic with very little inconvenience or cost. What you need to understand is that Jesus and the gospel are neither of those two things. And and in fact, Jesus and the gospel aren't even on the spectrum between those things. Jesus and the gospel stand, stand, stand outside of that spectrum. God, Jesus, is not a harsh taskmaster. He's not looking to impose some moral code on you. He wants you to know who He is and believe in Him. That's what He wants. And, and, and what you believe will then influence how you behave. He wants you to behave as a result of a relationship, as a result of loving Him. Not because He's a ha- harsh taskmaster cracking the whip and pointing out all the do's and don'ts in your life. He even says in Matthew 11, come to Me all of you who are weary 
and heavy laden. He's talking to people just like you and me who have codes, who have, uh, who have guidelines, who have these strict laws that we try to live our lives by. We have these causes that we're trying to live up to and we're realizing in the quiet of our own heart when nobody's around, we're going, I can't even live up to my own code. It's hard. He's saying to all of us, come to me because my yoke, my burden is light. You get me. You don't get a teaching. You get me. So he's not a harsh taskmaster. But the gospel and Jesus is not something or someone for whom salvation costs nothing and therefore salvation is cheap to us. Do you understand that our salvation cost him everything? Everything. And so this isn't a relativistic salvation where there's no cost no inconvenience, no depth, no meaning, no relationship. It is the epitome of depth and relationship. And that's why Jesus has the right and the platform to say to you and me, repent, believe, and be baptized. Let me pray and we'll go into our time of response. The band would come up, please. Lord God, we, uh, we thank You for your gospel and its truth, and we thank you that you have, you have claimed victory over Satan, sin, and death. And that this realm that we do struggle with today, you have power over. You are the ultimate power and authority, and so we thank you for that. And so God, I pray that as we live our lives in you, that we would be always directed to you and your word and to prayer. That scripture tells us that we are to put on the armor of God at all times, but that we have victory in you. So God, let's claim that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.